know where or when you are because the podcast world is a mysterious place of time travel. You might be listening to this on the day the episode drops, or you might be listening to this in the year 2025. Who knows? It's kind of why I love this medium so much. But for me, I am coming at you from December, closing out a decade. The year is 2019, and we are living out the last few weeks of what's been a very wild (laughs) 10 years. A lot has happened. A lot will happen. It makes your head spin if you let it. But here in this moment, I don't actually want to blast your brains with talks of decades in review or maximizing productivity as we close out this decade. Instead, I want to create a space for you, for us in this December madness where we can sit together and have a conversation that nourishes. And that is precisely what this episode is all about. You are about to meet a poet by the name of Tina Chang. Tina is the Poet Laureate of Brooklyn, the first ever woman to be given that title, and is the author of the poetry collections Half Lit Houses and Of Gods and Strangers. She is also co-editor of the Norton Anthology Language for a New Century Contemporary Poetry from the Middle East, Asia, and Beyond. And her most recent poetry collection, Hybrida, is extraordinary. This part I'm clearly reading off her bio because it's so beautifully written. It confronts the complexities of raising a mixed-race child during an era of political upheaval in the United States. Amen. It was named a best book of 2019 by Publishers Weekly and NPR. And NPR had this to say about her collection. Chang's third collection is one of the most important books of poetry to come along in years. Tina teaches poetry at Sarah Lawrence College, and she's all ours for the next half hour or so. Pour yourself a cup of tea or a nice strong coffee, get cozy, and enjoy. I was wondering if you would be open to starting off by reading a poem of your choosing from your latest piece, your latest collection. So my latest book is called Hybrida, and it derived from the word hybrid. Hybrida is Latin, and the meaning of it is the combination of two or more things. And since My son is of mixed race. I am Chinese American and his father is originally from Haiti. He is a child of mixed race and thinking about him, and I've been writing the book for about 10 years, since the time he was born until now, the state of our nation, I think, has been really under a great amount of duress and I think in some cases, trauma and thinking about his existence as a young boy and then also contemplating the lives of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and many young brown boys that have really lost their lives from the hands of authority figures. It started making me think about fairy tales and the existence of children in fairy tales and how in most fairy tales, if we remember Grimm's fairy tales, they're sort of grim. Yeah. And thinking about them, there were always figures of children in these stories that were sent out most of the time by themselves or abandoned. And then there were always these predatory figures such as the hunter and the witch 
placed in the stories. And so my imagination started to combine these sort of national stories with those classic fairy tales. In the poem that I'm about to read, I am speaking of the life of a young boy named Libby Kletsky. Libby Kletsky was a boy living in Brooklyn who wanted to walk home by himself. He was about eight years old at the time, and he asked his parents if he could walk home alone. His parents said no. And he begged them, he continued to ask them if he could do this. And so they thought maybe this is something that he really needs to do to grow up. And so they finally said yes. They practiced the path home on the day that he walked out of school. He was confused. Instead of turning left, he turned right. And he asked somebody for directions home, and he never made it home alive. So thinking about his existence and then also thinking about fairy tales made me contemplate these sort of archetypal characters. So this is, um, and also I was reading the book In the Night Kitchen by Maurice Sendak to my daughter. And in the book, there is the line, milk in the batter, milk in the batter, we bake cake and nothing's the matter. This is called milk. In every definition of home, my son conjures milk. The sun is milk. Milk spills through open doorways Bed of warm milk, face of milk, milk trousers, a truck full of milk. A milky light passes through the lens of my camera. All of his young life, my son thought of milk, and he asked for it each night. In every memory I have of him, his hands are outstretched, and he's asking for his last bottle. In every version of a life, I never refuse him. On the television, the nation listens to the story of Libby Kletsky. Today, I think of his mother, who waited for him, allowing him for the first time to walk home alone. That morning, he held a key, heavy and shining, made especially for him. In the ancient story of boys, he headed up the street past the lone dog, barking near the fire hydrant, past the children in the circle, careening into their own shadows. And in the ancient story of boys, he walked through his front door, and this was his rite of passage. He placed his book bag on the coffee table, and the boy and the mother sat together in the large reading chair in the living room light. But this version isn't true. Tonight, I hold my son closer. As I put on his night clothes, I'm afraid of the world. I find all the stories horrifying. In the book of nursery rhymes, the old woman sends her son to bed without food. A king beats a knave for stealing pies. And the dog cannot find his bone, though he runs in circles day after day. Perhaps if I rewrite all the old stories, a new era will begin. Era of the forgiven. Era of redemption. Era of safekeeping. Tonight, Milk stains my blouse, love so deep, it runs from me. After the old stories are finished, my son says, the story, again. I open the book, the owls lift from the pages. The lake is a bowl of night milk. And this a place so safe, we are weightless, buoyant in its murky sweetness, free from a promise that each new day startles us alive. Oh my God, if you could see me, I have tears rolling down my face. (laughs) 
That was so beautiful. I cannot even bear how beautiful that is. Uh, One of the things that was running through my mind as I was listening to you, and one of the central questions I have for you is, do you feel like as a poet, you have this extra capacity to process what goes on in the world? I think about the poets and I think about how you can take the terror of being the mother of a boy of color, a boy child of color, and make art out of it. Do you feel like that's a superpower you have? Well, it definitely is a a sense, you know, a sense and a way of seeing, I think, because, you know, one of the things that I remember one of my professors asked is, why does this form of writing need to appear as a poem? Why can't this appear as anything else? And I think that's what I was consistently asking myself when I was creating the book, because so much of it was really influenced by media, social media, newspapers, journalism, television. So all of these stories were circulating in my head. So I think that I very consistently asked myself, well, why can't I let it be? Why can't I allow these stories of young boys and also girls, but boys were the sort of figures that were very prevalent in the news. I thought to myself, why can't I just then let journalism handle it? Let journalism absorb those stories. And I think that what consistently haunted me and kept coming back to me is that that wasn't good enough. It was media that was reporting it. Then where was the human spirit that came in to process it and interpret it, analyze it, and then feel it. Because I think there was a large part of me that after the news stories were over, I kept thinking of Michael Brown's mother, and I kept thinking of Trayvon Martin's mother. All mothers and fathers and any caregiver, because not all families are traditional families, I kept thinking about what if you place all of your love into this human being and there is nothing more that you care for and you place them out in the world with faith in the world that nothing will happen to them because it really is just faith and a belief and then the world doesn't hold true on its promise, right? So I think in that way, I started to feel, well, then this only could really exist in poems because that's not being handled in other forms of news and also literature. So, And then there's also that famous saying that goes, write the book that you want to read, write the book that you don't feel exists. And I truly didn't feel that it existed. I didn't feel that there was a book that was speaking from the voice of a mother who was talking about race. So we're then getting from like sort of this national, larger historical story to like a singular story of a mother and a child and how that begins to converse with each other. So then as I was writing the book, I was sort of like living these spaces of like nursing my son, Mm. um, making sure that he had everything that he needed. And of course, as a mother, I was saying, does he, does he have everything that he needs. I know that at home I can provide him with food. I can provide him with shelter. 
I can provide him with what I think he needs to keep him safe. For example, I could install a gate so that he doesn't fall down the stairs. I could make sure that I have mushy food so that he doesn't choke. And then so, but as he gets older and older, I'm realizing that I was embarking upon opening the door to the outside world. So Mm -hmm. I could keep him safe within the four walls of my home as a mixed race black child. But then once I open the door and now we're really getting to a stage in his life where he's going to start traveling by himself. Mm. This scares me to death. It scares me to death that he's going to actually be out on the streets by himself with dark skin and what the symbolic ramifications of that dark skin means in the world. Okay, so if you ask me, I could say, well, his dark skin is beauty. You know, it's like I could, everyone that crosses his path says, like, he's just one of the most beautiful people that they've ever met in terms of not just the way that he looks, but his whole aura and his way of being. But that might not be the way everyone sees it. We're looking at white and black. If we could say that we are complicated beings, we are each of us so complicated. Most of the things that are in our imagination, we can't even express to other people. So the things that we're posting on, on Facebook and Instagram, it's but a little speck of who we are. And that little speck that we are presenting might not even be true. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes like, how does poetry engage? You know, when, especially in an environment where maybe not everybody reads poetry, yeah. you know, so we can ask ourselves like, when do we even see poetry? <laughs> like yeah. I know that traveling in New York City, if I were just a lay person who didn't study this for a good majority of my life, the only times I actually see poetry is on the train. So there's a series called Poetry in Motion, uh, co-sponsored by the MTA transit system here, as well as the Poetry Society of America. And so they, they didn't have it for a little while because I think they were trying to decide, is it something that is needed on the trains? Is it something that people are reading? And then once it disappeared, once the poetry disappeared from the transit systems, people were really missing it. <laughs> They're like, where, oh, what, sure. where are those poems that we used to see on the trains? Where are they? So they brought it back. They're incredibly popular. And it's very interesting because I get, because one of my poems actually did here, the New York City subway. And it's amazing how... Wow, what was that like? Well, it was it was mind-blowing because there were so many people that were writing to me, people you wouldn't expect. Like, So I'll give a really good example. So my poem really has to do with keys and entryways and doorways and doorways to intimate moments and doorways to families. And there was a an example of something that I wouldn't even expect. Somebody wrote to me and said... I am a maker of keys. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, that is so magical. Locksmith. <laughs> like a, like somebody who's interested in making keys and technology of keys and bringing keys into the future. He wrote to me because he had been very invested in poetry long ago. And reading the poem made him realize that he loved poetry and that he was very affected by poetry and he just wanted to share his thanks and that fact that not only was the poem speaking to him but the poem was actually spoke to his perfection profession of being a locksmith and then there was another woman who wrote to me and I'm still thinking back what I hope I wrote back to her is that she said that she had not really felt that connected to her grandson 
but that she was writing in her notebook and she copied down the lines from my poem. And then he happened to see it in her notebook and said, oh, I know who that is. And I know that poem. And they embarked on this longer conversation together. And she just wanted to write a letter to me to say that after they talked about the poem, they felt so much closer to each other that they realized that they had something in common that they shared. And that was the love of words. So it just was amazing to me, the kind of letters that I was receiving or the spaces in one's spirit and in one's heart that opens up when you kind of stop what you're doing for a second, like scrolling through your phone or even answering a text and look up for a second and see something. It may not be my lines. It could be somebody else's lines that stir something in you. you know? I agree. In fact, I feel like right now, with social media, with always on, with Netflix, with just so much stimulation, it seems like right now at this stage in history and being in the year 2020 is just, it's so weird and so Blade Runner. But I, I feel that right now we are in this process of reclaiming, regathering our own humanity. We're so far off the course in some ways. And I feel that poetry is one of those you know, touchstones that sort of brings us back into each other, back into ourselves, back into what it means to be human. And it's so funny. I, I, when I was thinking about talking to you and I was thinking about, well, when do I engage with poetry? It's, you know, I always go back to the stuff I inhaled in my twenties before there was so much technology, like the Mary Oliver's of the world. And I think, my God, I'm still stuck on Mary Oliver because I don't have space in my life to absorb new, go look for new poets. And that's why I was so excited when our paths crossed. What advice do you have for us for re-entering the world of poetry? Like, how do we carve out space in our lives for it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's such a good question. You're right. I mean, I think even talking about Mary Oliver, right? So Mary Oliver passed away not too long ago, which sort of indicating like a time frame and that she was an older poet, but her poetry, because it touched upon nature and sunlight and water and just the most essential things of life, her work spoke to so many people. But I think that you're right. There are so many poets, so many places where we can find poetry, but I think in the rush of life, for example, we're taking care of our families, we're trying to get to work, we're trying yes. to get back, we're trying to just carve out a little bit of time for ourselves. You know, how on earth do we engage with it? And I think there's so many spaces that we could find poetry and start to just find little places that maybe we could educate ourselves on what we could be reading in the year, you know, we're moving into 2020. Great places, like if we're For example, if you happen to be in a bookstore and you're hanging out with a child, one of the things that we can do is hang out with them for a little while and, you know, read to them. And then sort of when they're reading a little independently on their own, I almost always kind of saunter over to two places, the cookbooks 
and I, I want to see what I can be cooking and what I could be doing there. Mm. And then I'll always saunter over to the poetry section. What's great about the poetry section of most independent bookstores is that they're really small. <laughs> they're mm. really, really small. They'll usually have a mixture of the big classics, you know, like the Odyssey. Right. <laughs> yeah. Things that we wanted to read and maybe didn't read when we were younger, maybe struggled with in college. And then they will have, I think, a great place to start is anthologies. Anthologies are essentially, you know, curated poems that an editor decide, like, these are some of the best poems that I've read. There is even the poetry series called the Best American Poetry Series, which comes out once a year, which most bookstores have. And that is curated by a very well-read person each year. There's usually a guest editor. And they're basically saying, these are some of the best poems that I think that you could read by anywhere from 30 to 50 people. And I have always appreciated anthologies because they give me a little bit of a window into a poet's larger body of work. So if I'm not ready or I don't even know about a a poet's larger body of work, I will look at the anthology and maybe there's just one poem that will really strike me, that will speak to me directly about my life. Or I'll give you an example where there's a wonderful, wonderful website for the Academy of American Poets, and they have a daily newsletter called Poem a Day. Oh, I love that. To your inbox, and I'm going to admit it right now because I hope that whoever hears me knows that this is not an obligation. I don't read it every day. So if it comes into my inbox, I might not have time that day, but maybe I'll read it once that week, or maybe I'll read it two or three times that week if I'm really lucky. And almost always there is a poem that week that affects me so much. Like a poem that I remember very recently was a poem that landed in my inbox with a sort of end of the year, best of this, best of that. There's all these best of lists. I started to think of, oh gosh, you know, I hope uh, there's some room for the best of, you know, for my work. Then I I started thinking too much about that. And there was a poem that landed in my inbox that was about stepping out of the limelight, not feeling like you're in competition. And this applies to everything, not feeling like you're in competition with anyone else. And by the end of the poem, the stepping out of the limelight and the stepping, there was an actual stage at the end of the poem. And by stepping out of the light of the stage, that was a form of gratitude. And I was so heavily impacted by this poem because it was just speaking to everything I was thinking about that week. I'm like, why am I so conscious of the outside world? It's really about what is happening inwardly. That is the most important thing. And so that poem landing in my inbox was great for me. So, you know, looking up poem a day by the Academy of American Poets, just having that delivered to you is great. I also... uh, was a podcast host for a podcast called The Slowdown. This is a mm. Oh my also, God, what a great name for a podcast. Well, I love that. If you have less than five minutes, I would say if you have three minutes, what it does, and you don't even have to read the poem, what happens is the podcast host, who is Tracy K. Smith, who was once the poet laureate of the United States, she just stepped down this past year. She started this wonderful podcast that also delivers a poem into your inbox, except you don't have to read it. She's just talking to you about a poem that she's found that has oh, affected oh. her 
that day and she'll tell you about a personal experience in her life. Like, for, I'll give you a great example. She read a poem where she very openly talked about a miscarriage and why she was attracted to this poem and how it spoke so deeply to her when she felt that during a time in her life, she didn't know who to speak to about this private, incredible and deep and dark loss in her life. This is the kind of thing that poetry can do. It can speak directly to your heart, but your heart needs to be open. You can open it just even for a few minutes a day, because I think oftentimes as with poetry and exercise, we feel like we don't have the time, you know, they're somehow landing in the same category. Like I don't have time for exercise. I definitely don't have time for poetry. And it has but, been- but as as I've heard that other quote say, well, do you have time to feel like shit? <laughs> <laughs> and both things solve that problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's so true. And it is now proven that if we can even work out for seven to 10 minutes a day, or even if we do that three times a week, it is less likely that we will feel like shit. And the same goes for poetry. If you can allow your heart to really open up, not scroll through a phone for, because I do the same thing. And this is why I could say not scroll through your phone through the Instagram feed, but like really click open your inbox for this poem for a voice to reach you to say, you don't have to read. Let me talk to you about oh, that I'm reading for three minutes. I Let love it. Three minutes. And it will change the whole course of your day. And when they had guest editors like myself and Brenda Shaughnessy, and Brenda Shaughnessy was talking about a poem by Rick Barrett called The Wooden Overcoat. The Wooden Overcoat was a coffin. And it held a very important person inside that coffin. And the poem spoke to deep that also kind of deep loss of losing someone. And I don't know about you, but this year on Facebook, all I've been reading about is that everyone has lost a parent or a loved one. And this is where poetry, yeah, it could just enter into your life and say, if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling a loss that you don't even know how to talk to somebody about, poetry can walk into your life and keep you company. I love that. And you know, there's some, there's another way that I sometimes with the right client, I will sometimes use this, this technique, but, and Tina, you probably see this with your students, but there is a certain personality type because I'm a communication coach. So I help people give talks and just become better communicators, more Mm -hmm. authentic communicators. And a lot of people struggle with speaking too quickly and speaking with the vocal uptick, just like I did. And these really unfortunate patterns of communication that have become super, super common. And when they get advice to improve, very well-intending people will say things like, oh, just slow down, which isn't helpful if you're a speed talker, right? And so what I always tell them is, don't worry about slowing down. Don't worry about speed. Here's what I want you to focus on. Learn how to use silence when you speak. And certain clients, I can say to them, why don't you memorize this poem? I want you to see how the poet has broken it up and use silence to punctuate and speak where the words don't actually speak. And using poetry can sometimes train that part of my client to learn where how to use power in silence. And I find it can be really effective with the right person. And that's the other thing I love about poetry. Not only do we absorb it silently, but it can be so powerful to memorize it and to experiment with delivering 
a piece vocally so that it's knitted into your body, into your lungs, into your breath. It, it's like a different kind of kinesthetic intelligence, learning how to embody a piece of written art like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, you know, when you read your poetry and there are the natural breaks and stops and silence, you know, what's that like for you? I think you bring up a very important subject about silence and also pause. You know, what does it mean to take pause? I think in our regular daily conversations, I was I was thinking as you were speaking, why do people speak so quickly? I think we have a lot of ideas <laughs> and I think that people have so many ideas that they're trying very hard to not lose the idea because yes. it, it passed so quickly that they're afraid that if they, they don't get it out quickly enough, it just might be lost forever. And the wonderful thing about poetry is it teaches us that if we do slow down and if we welcome pause taking sort of longer moments of silence or silence altogether, that there is faith that the thought won't be lost, but more fully deepened. I agree with you. I mean, I have suffered from many of the things that you just said, speaking quickly and also upward lilt. I mean, in fact, most of the time when I hear myself speak, it it is very difficult to hear that part of it. And it's good to be really conscious of it and what poetry has really taught me in terms of reading my own poems and also reading the work of others, especially reading the work of others, because I do have a tendency to slow down more when I read the work of others, is that there is a tremendous power to that. What if we were really able to sit in silence with another human and also with ourselves. Like what would happen? Nothing bad would happen. I think <laughs> there's this fear that if we allow the silence to take up the room and take up the space, even when we're sitting with someone, that something terrible would happen. And the, 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 the scary thing is that nothing would. And I think that Tina, I think you need to write a poem about that, <laughs> about what happens when two humans decide to face their anxiety of the silence. Well, because I think like we have to really break down what silence is really, you know, as I'm examining everybody when I'm riding the New York City subway, you know, everybody's heads are bent down in prayer, but the prayer is to the device. You know, and I I like to think that I was like, okay, so then we're honoring. I don't actually think it's like the actual physical thing. I do think it provides a comfort, just like, you know, any other sort of comfort item as when we are younger and we need a stuffy or a stuffed animal or, you know, what they call a binky or something. It's the fact definitely of holding something that is helpful in some way. But really it's like that we think that the device is like holding some sort of answer. And maybe I should just speak about myself here mm-hmm. is that often I would say oftentimes I ask myself when I'm looking at the phone, instead of maybe looking at everybody or examining everybody on the train or taking that walk and just looking around instead of on my phone walking, which is very, very dangerous in New York city. You know, what is it that I think that I'm looking for in the poem, because do you ever get that feeling that you're scrolling through either your Instagram feed or your Facebook feed and you're not finding what you're looking for? It's so true. <laughs> it's you so know, like, you have a feeling true. of the emptiness inside of yourself. Well, like, 
that's been- not it. That's not it. That's not it. <laughs> And that's what sometimes, and this is the addictive quality too of it, is that sometimes I'm finding that I'll spend longer periods of time because I haven't found the thing that I'm looking for. And I think that if I spend the longer period of time, I actually give myself 10 more minutes or 15 more minutes or 20 more minutes. And then that time passes and I look at the clock and I say to myself, I still haven't found it, what I'm looking for. So now it's very important to get very real and to say, I haven't found what I'm looking for here. That means it's not here. <laughs> that means it's not here. <laughs> and that is the biggest, that is a very frightening feeling to face up to that what you are looking for in the feeds or what you were looking for in the article or what you were looking for as you kept moving and moving and scrolling and scrolling is just that time passed. And maybe even sometimes some of the things that are happening is it, it could cause more insecurity in someone because some of the things that one might see is that someone accomplished something, they got a wonderful award or, you know, the birth of a child, everything wonderful seems to be happening to everybody on online and that idea of curation that we were talking about, that it place where it's starting to sort of damage the spirit. And I think it's important then to assess that and say, okay, in the ways that poetry can live and thrive and the ways that I can inhabit silence, those are the places that I think can be nerve wracking, can be frightening, could be also very, very healing because once we sort of give ourselves over to the silence and the silence starts to, you know, little words begin to bubble up and we're like, oh, you know, those words, they can hold a deeper meaning. Oh, those words, they not only hold meaning, but they actually are speaking to something in my life. Like that is sort of the larger vulnerability that is very, very hard. Because when you think about it, when we're scrolling through things, we're, we're not opening up our spirit. I don't think I've personally ever walked away from, you know, scrolling through feeds to say, oh, my spirit feels open now. But I have many, many times, almost all the time, walked away from a poem or a book of poems to say, today I feel changed. I really feel changed by what it is that I've just read. But it doesn't come without effort. And I think it takes like sort of a slight shift in our days to say, like, how can I shift the kind of efforts that I'm making? You know, I know that I'm making great efforts to go, for example, pick up my child from school. I know I'm making great efforts to make them a really nice meal at the end of the day. But what about the efforts with regard to ourselves? Yeah. And and I think that that effort, though, that you're talking about where you're creating space to open the spirit, I think there's a whole generation of people that don't even know what an open spirit feels like, Tina, Mm -hmm. because they've been raised with ambient stimulation since jump. And if you had to explain to someone what it feels like to have your spirit feel open How would you articulate that? I mean, I experienced, first of all, this challenge when I raised my children and their first go-to is, can I go on the screen? And I say to them, what if you didn't? And there's pushback. And they're like, but I want to. I said, but you have to ask yourself why that's your only space that you want to go to. So there's nothing else right now that feels satisfying to you. And they're like, no. I'm like, well, that's a problem. I was like, so we're going to sit here for a little while. I said, you could read a book. You could talk to me. 
we can make something together. I said, but we're going to do it. And sometimes that takes like, who is the older and supposedly the wiser one, which is the parent. Oh, like we got the elders. We have the elders telling the children what to do. That's exactly, exactly right. And you know, something else I noticed too, Tina, recently is when I, and I actually observed this in my daughter, Maddie, she's such a little artist and she will sit down because there's very specific hours of screen time in my house. And when it's not one of those hours, she'll just sit down with her sketch pad and just lose herself in making something. Mm. And I look at her and I feel envious on some level because I'm not an artist. You know, that's not my gift. But I've been looking for what's my version of sketching. And I find that those spirit opening things can come from like bullet journaling or writing if you're me writing really bad poetry, you know, doing those things, not because the output is anything I would ever publish or share or give back to the world, but because it opens that spirit. I love that phrase. I'm going to use your phrase from now on, but I, I love that. And I think just to close here, because I want to be respectful of your time. If I want the people listening to this, my greatest wish is that based on this conversation, they're listening to this thinking, how might I uncover, investigate, and slip into those spaces, those activities that open my spirit? And hybrida, y'all listening, that's a space. <laughs> Investigating poetry is a space. And I just, I cannot thank you enough, Tina, for this time. This has been such a gift. And, you know, can I, can I just add something? Because you're saying yes. something important that I want to make sure that I'm really delving into for a minute. You mentioned your daughter and you mentioned sort of being envious of that space that a child has ownership of. And I think it's really important for listeners to understand maybe that where that's stemming from. You know, when we watch children and they're delving into that world where they have access to art and music and they're falling into it, we were there once too, all of us, all of us were there when we were three, four, five, six, moving upward, maybe even through high school. All of us had that sense of freedom. And the reason why I think that freedom might slightly drop away until we're in our 40s and our 50s, maybe even older, where we're like, where did that person go? Why don't I have access to that anymore? And I think it's very important to say well, it's just like what you were saying. I think you might have even mentioned the word value. I think that as we get older, we prescribe a value to things, whereas the child doesn't think, is this valuable? When I finish this, is someone going to come along and judge it and deem it to be a good piece of work or a bad piece of work? They don't. They just know that they're making it. And maybe the next step is they might show it to you. And that's as far as it goes for them. So it becomes then about the process of making it. And that's important as opposed to the end result of what comes after. And I think it's so important to recognize that as the, each of us tries to make something to say, well, what if I made it and I didn't judge it and I didn't even have to show it to anybody, but I was just embracing the minutes of just being here and creating something. And just that in and of itself is giving me life. And what's important here is me, 
my process, the moments, the happiness that I'm feeling as I'm creating something from nothing. And, and, and with regard to what it is that you were mentioning about how we're going to bring this in every day, the sense of like openness of spirit, openness of spirit, what it feels like is when you take a walk out by yourself and there's nobody else around and you're not afraid you just are living in the moment and you're looking around and thinking i'm one of something in the mm. world i am i am one with whatever it is that i'm doing right now i'm looking up at the sky i'm looking the, at the expansiveness of the world that i am living in and i am perfectly and 100% okay. How do I know that I'm okay? My feet are planted on the ground. I'm going to move my feet along the yeah. ground one step in front of the other and allowing that one step in front of the other to be reminding you that you can breathe. And as long as you're breathing, you're okay. And in terms of people kind of allowing that to last in the form of art, it's such an important time right now at the end of 2019, the end of a decade you know, to really kind of look back and take stock and to know and to feel all the gratitude for the good things that have come, because there are many, many good things if we can sit down and think about it. And if I were to give anybody a piece of advice about incorporating more poetry into your life, there are many gains and there are many losses. Think about who's here. Think about who is still in your life. Think about who you would like to honor in the form of something, even if it's words, Take out a piece of paper, a little piece of stationery, and write down something that is meaningful to you about that person. Put it in an envelope and mail it to them. There could be more beautiful that you could do right now toward the holiday season to tell somebody that you care about them. Not just texting them, not just calling them, but writing something down on a piece of paper and letting them know that their presence in your life is meaningful. That's gorgeous. Thank you so, so much, Tina. That was wonderful. Thanks. 